we go. Can you hear me? Yes, I can yeah. hear you. Yeah. Yep, you're good. Okay. Welcome back to another episode of Creative Talks Commercial Real Estate Podcast. And I have my co-host again, Jeremy, for this book club episode. The, the book series is one of my favorite series for my podcast. And I miss you, Jeremy. My podcast was not as fun without you. We have to invite you. Just remind me. I can come on every week. I've got nothing else going on. Look, maybe, um, hopefully, I hear you know, the rumor is is that Vegas is reopening. So uh, maybe we could do a show for get a couple other guests and do a show from the floor of um, the MGM Grand. You should come to the ICSC because I'm planning to do. What is that? series of interviews during the ICSE week. That one is in December in Las Vegas. I think it's the first or second weeks of December. Double check on the ICSE website. So the question is, is what's the weather in Vegas like, Miss Siegel, in December? Oh, it's great. It's not hot as the summer. Um, Winter, you might get a little bit of wind, but it's not as cold as New York. Come on, Jeremy, would you rather to be in New York in December or in Las Vegas? Well, that's why I'm asking. I, so I went out to lunch today with someone. It was the first time I'd actually left the house in a year. And I was like, wow, I forgot what it was like to leave the house. I'm sitting outside, it's 80 degrees. I'm wearing this and, and sandals and, and shorts. I'm thinking to myself, this is the life. Why am I in New York? We've been driving around, singing songs way too loud because we wanna. talk today about a guy who never got to Vegas, but he was all over. He built New York and he built a nice portion of Los Angeles and Montreal too. William Zeckendorf. So when I logged on today, I I saw your picture, which was the picture of an old sign of Vegas. And Mm -hmm. I asked you when that was from, because it's a stunning, beautiful picture of the sign with the, the background of the mountains. And he said, yeah, that's all developed. So Zeckendorf was really a guy who touched all over Los Angeles, Montreal. He built an underground city. And I wrote down a few things from the book that I thought we could discuss and kind of relate to what, what you're doing now and the, and the program that you did earlier this week. Mm-hmm. It would start with uh, how he got started. He started off as a broker with a company called Web and Nap, and he ended up dominating web and I think he originally worked for his uncle or something and the uncle didn't pay him. So he said, yes, you can buzz off. I'll go do it on my own. Ends up owning the company and he gets involved with, I guess you could call it an early version of a family office. So he's involved with the Astor family who at, at the time was one of the richest families in the world. And they founded the Waldorf Astoria, as you know, we all know. Waldorf Astoria. So they, that was one of their hotels. And these guys 
you know, John Jacob Astor is really one of the most interesting people. And this is, by the way, like the fifth John Jacob Astor. Have you ever seen the movie Titanic? Yes. One of the guy with the pregnant wife who's like 30 years younger than him. I don't remember that part. So the original Astor was a fur trapper and he bought up most of New York, like back when there were like beavers in New York and stuff. And his family remained very, they remained very wealthy. Anderson Cooper is actually an Astor, if I'm not mistaken. His mother was, no, he's a Vanderbilt. I'm sorry. I'm confusing Vanderbilt's and Astor's. Brooke Astor was an Astor. She was like the last Astor. There was a big trial about 10 or 15 years ago. Her son basically looted her estate. It was you know, a big scandal. But you know, at the time, they had a lot of money. I think they gave a lot of it away, and it just dissipated over the years, inheritance taxes. But they had a lot of money back then, and he was basically managing their portfolio. I just thought we could talk for a minute about family offices. He was basically running an early version of a family office. Vincent Astor, whatever his name was, goes off to go goof off from as a spy during World War II. And he comes back and Zeckendorf is managing his estate. And um, I was reading something the other day about the Bill Gates estate. So Gates is worth $134 billion. And he's, got re- he's actually the biggest owner of farmland in the United States, believe it or not. And his assets are all held in this company called Cascadia, which is run by this asset manager. So basically, Zeckendorf was like an early version of a family office asset manager. And that's something that a lot of um, NYU students have gone in. You know, they work for these affluent families that want to be in the real estate business. The point was that he was, these are very active people in real estate. So things have changed, but nothing really changes over time. There's still, you still have a lot of people who are in family offices and they can do what they want. It's a great thing. I don't think um, as in school, you learn as much about that. And he does that fascinating deal at the UN. I mean, I thought that was a fascinating deal. This guy goes, he's got guts of steel. He goes out and he basically bets money he doesn't have to buy the land from, what was the name of the company, Armor or or Cargill or whoever it was. And he doesn't know what he's going to do with it. And he goes out and he gets the Rockefellers to to take it off his hands for what he paid or a little more. He put, I think in the book, Zeckendorf is really just a, a great writer. I'd recommend everybody go and read the book. It's actually a very well-written book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, he, he's very personal about it. He talks about what he's done. You know, he talks about how he, he gives, he sells the land to the UN. He could have done something great there. But I think he realized it would have bankrupted him. And he didn't have the money because he was scrambling to get the money. He put the down, he put the earnest money down. He, you know, he had a year to come up with the rest of it. And he, was, he did it, he bought it secretly. And the Rockefellers buy him out. And the Rockefellers say, we'll give the land to the UN. So he's really responsible for doing the, the original development, the land assemblage yeah. for that great property. And I think that really goes into the risk thing, because this yeah. is not the only risk this guy took. This is a guy who had an appetite for risk that is absolutely yeah. astounding. Yeah. Uh, he talked in the book about how he, David Rockefeller, was the chairman of the Chase Manhattan Bank, I think. I think it was Chase Manhattan. And he comes to him and says, well, everybody's leaving downtown. You got to do something. So he basically goes and starts trading these office buildings. He basically buys one, sells one to another. We'll take you out, put you in this one, put you in another one. These old buildings that have all since become apartments. And he ends up not making any money off of it, but he's like, I think it was a success. 
Well, on the other hand, that gets us back to the question of risk, because this guy, and he writes in the book something that I thought was really interesting. He says, look, I was exposed for millions and millions of dollars in for all the debt. And I didn't have any, like my profit was like 5%. He talks in the book about how he came up with the Hawaiian problem. And he basically figured out he could segment the piece of real estate into the building, the leases, the land, the air rights. And he was very, very innovative. So this guy was not just an egomaniac who was able to take on risk. He was a, a, a very, very, very advanced thinker. And you know, I think we all owe something to him. And I actually have something to add on that. In my podcast episode three, I did an episode interview with Anastasia from Eisenberg and Company, and she explained the concept of ground leases. And in the opening of that podcast, I mentioned this book because in this book, Zackendorf calls it property fractioning. How do you divide a property into different tranches of financing structure? The ground, you can sell it to, let's say, an insurance company who wants minimum risk, but a long-term hold strategy and a single-digit return. And then the building itself, you can sell it to, let's say, a private equity firm. And then the, also the operation side of the company you can sell it to like another third party, if I remember that correctly. But he, this comment of every part, but he was like you said, he just was able to see value where, where where we would see other things. He saw ways to get value out of things, and I think that's something we. As, I'm sorry to have interrupted, but that's something you hit on it right on the point. This is a guy who was able to identify every kind of value in there. He would identify value in an elevator if it had value. I mean, that's how innovative this guy was. And I was going to add something and then I don't remember, but I the type of people that I really like in commercial real estate are the ones who can identify opportunities and risk and ideas outside of the spreadsheet. I actually posted something on my Twitter last week. I feel like somebody like Zackendorf or some of the developers that I like in Las Vegas in casino hotels, they're artists. Like they don't follow the traditional path of crunching numbers and look at the the Excel stuff. Well, I mean, they didn't have Excel back then, 1950s. But I just like the way they look at an investment or a piece of property is different. Like they have the eyes of the artist that they can identify opportunities that other people cannot identify, which this also ties to the previous episode where we talk about Harry McLeod, the, the Apple store, glass store in front of the GM building. And he was the one who came up with that idea. And he sat down with Steve Jobs in like 2003. That was in the iPod era. <laughs> iPhone didn't even come out. That was back when people had those big bulbous iMacs, the, yeah. uh, remember the blue ones? Oh, I don't remember because I was too young at the time. But um, but I just love the way they think. And I feel like the commercial real estate industry needs more artists. Well, here's the, I, I completely agree. But the other way to look at that in complete agreement is, do you think spreadsheets have, you know, spreadsheets have done so much good, but do you think there's almost a tyranny of a spreadsheet? Because if you're such a slave to the spreadsheets, I heard somebody say at a conference once and everybody was like, oh, how could you say that? 
don't you think you lose something like the genius of a Zeckendorf or the genius of a Macro? And, and, and all these guys have one or two things in common. They're not publicly traded. They're private buccaneers with three guys in an office as secretary who answers the phone and two guys who drive and two guys who close buildings for them. And they do everything out of their, uh, you ever see the movie, The Lincoln Lawyer? No. He's, he's a lawyer who drives around LA in a Lincoln. They're, they're like the, the real estate version, the business versions of the Lincoln lawyer. They just drive around doing deals or take the subway. They do them out of their hat or their briefcase. Do you think the spreadsheet is, yeah. and the spreadsheet is a huge, I don't want to be misquoted here. The spreadsheet is incredibly important. It's a great innovation. I need to work on learning more about spreadsheets, as I think we all do. But do you think we lose something with the spreadsheet? Yes, I 100% completely agree with you. For those of you who follow me on Twitter, how much I hate how institutionalized commercial real estate development has become, and it started to lose the creativity, the visionary, the art design part of it. And let me take a step back and let me answer the question first before I can talk for two hours and I can talk about the Las Vegas Strip. I only talk about the Las Vegas Strip and you can talk about New York. Well, I think, I think the Las Vegas Strip is the, the Las Vegas Strip in New York are the, they may not be on opposite, they are on opposite sides of the continent, but that's really where you're getting the most expression other than a guy like Jerry Hines, who just expresses and hires great yeah. architects. Every other city, it's basically a bunch of glass towers. Um, yeah, Vegas. Exactly. I'm sorry to have interrupted. It's but. okay. <laughs> this is a conversation and I love it. The Las Vegas Strip, besides the newer hotels that were built by public traded companies, was not built by people who had a degree in finance. It's sad for me to see how the Strip has become so institutionalized now that it started to lose its authenticity and creativity in design and architecture. If you look at hotels like the Bellagio, the Mirage, Wynn, Encore, Treasure Island, MGM Grand, Venetian, Palazzo, Luxor, Excalibur, the Caesars Palace, and Circus Circus, all of these hotels were built by four guys, Jay Sarnell, Kirk Corian, Steve Wynn, and Sheldon Elderson, and none of them had a degree in finance. But they had something that you cannot learn from a textbook, which is, it's very hard to explain this. It's, I, it's like, I always call it it. But you have it or you don't have it. It's this, it's, you can never quantify it. Like when I, I remember when I worked in politics, just, just exactly what you said. I remember I was talking to someone about a candidate and I said, he doesn't have it. And they're like, what's it? And I said, it is that charisma, that, that genius, that when you talk to somebody, they're special. It's, I guess it's in a way, it's kind of even like dating. You just meet, and you, there's just something has that charisma about them. And, and it's, you can't quantify it. We're never going to be able to quantify it. But Kirk Kerkorian, was a genius on many levels. Steve Wynn is a bingo parlor operator who took, who took a mobbed up city between the two of them and Jay Sarno, and they brought it into the 21st century. I guess, I think the next question is, do you think the innovation is moving outside of Vegas because it's a matured market? Do you think the innovation is moving to Macau and Singapore and the Pacific Rim? 
Let me take a step back and continue answer that question because I have more to say. And then we can talk about Macau and Singapore. And 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 I think this episode is supposed to be about the book, but for my podcast, we always end up talking about Vegas.、Um, but, the, but, 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 but the book is about a genius, and we're、yeah. talking about we're talking about how genius manifests itself. So let me take a step back and go back to the point about spreadsheet, and I've. Like every time when I look at a lot of these financial modelings, does any analyst asking why do we put a three percent increase annually for the rent? Like why is it three percent? Oh, because everybody else is doing it, but why? It's like the spreadsheet it's created a boundary, an invisible wall that you couldn't jump outside of the wall and think about like go. Deeper, go find the deeper meaning behind it instead of just following instructions. Oh, because my manager told me to do so. It's almost like it's a golden handcuff for the spreadsheet. Okay, three percent. It's how do you, it's going to go up three percent? I don't. And what happens, by the way, when it doesn't go up three percent? Like I had a fight with my landlord about six months ago. I told them I wanted to get out of the lease. They were like, no. And I said, okay, I'm not renewing. I'll pay you the end till the end of the lease, but I'm not renewing. They're like, "Oh, we think we're going to get, we can get more than this when we put the apartment back on the market." And I said,、uh, "Yeah, in Dreamland, because that may be what your spreadsheet says. That might be what you told your bank, but rents have collapsed. And how do you deal with something like what happened in the last year? And by the way, this happens every ten or fifteen years. This happened in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. This is not like okay." Covid. Every crisis is different, and Bill Zeckendorf, by the way, had his own crisis. Yeah, how do you deal with that when you're dealing with a spreadsheet? How can we, as younger professionals, make a spreadsheet and make these things speak more than just the numbers and, and go deeper than what my manager said? I have to raise rents by three percent a year.、Uh, you're muted. Yeah. yeah. Let me say hi to our guest in the room. Hi, Hugo. Hi, Evan. Just a reminder: this is a podcast recording, so if you don't want to be recorded, you can let me know, and I can cut out your part in the editing. But if you just want to listen, that's totally fine too. Welcome to the party. <laughs> Welcome. Oh, hi, Evan.、Uh, I think that the crisis is kind of just beginning. Like this collapse in rent has quite a ways to go. If you look at a bunch of other factors, like the supply chain meltdown, etc., I just don't think there's、uh, as many people looking to sign leases anytime soon. Thank you. Well, I, I think we could talk about that—that that very good point—in in the context of the spreadsheet. Like, how do you bake into your spreadsheet, which, by the way, is five years old? What this reminds me. In Sam Zell's book, am I being too subtle? I recommend that book. I think we talked about it too. In one of the chapter, he said he was looking at an associate and analyst model, and he thinks that the associate focused too much on the model, and he forgot to look at the overall picture of the deal. And I feel like spreadsheet is like a black hole. When you look at it, paying attention and dig into the details. It it drags you into this hole that you might forget to look at the overall picture. And what about the millions of variables outside of your spreadsheet that you cannot control? And I feel like 
how about one that's been talked about a lot in our NYU group chat that we're in? And, and this goes right back to what Evan said a couple minutes ago about the crisis just beginning with the supply shortages. What about lumber prices? Lumber prices from I understand I am not in the development space, but lumber prices are apparently triple have apparently gone up by multiples in the last four or five years. So you you planted the piece of property five years ago, you've got your spreadsheet, but you're paying a dollar twenty-five for lumber. Now it's three fifty. That money's coming out of your pocket. The bank's not just going to give you more money. You can't just say, oh, I'm going to raise rents by that amount. The market's not going to bear that right now, maybe in five years. And by the way, another lesson of Zeckendorf's book is that the long term, everybody makes money. But in the long term, we're all dead. And the market can remain irrational a lot longer than you can remain solvent. I just quoted John Maynard Keynes three times this but, um yeah, I'm sorry to have interrupted again. <laughs> These are just such great topics we could talk about. Yes. And what my favorite. Okay. Well, let's go back to the book and talk about some of the other projects that he did outside of New York City. He did some great projects. If you go to Montreal, he built downtown Montreal. He did it when nobody else was willing to do it. He, and then the, be, the best deal, I thought, was the uh, Century City deal where he bought the back lot of Fox. So what happened in L.A. was back in the day, all the movies were shot in New York. This wasn't in the book, by the way. This is just about L.A. Thomas Edison did not like anybody else shooting movies in New York. So he would chase them around with his patent lawyers. And they went and they filmed these movie ranches. And they were, this is back when nobody lived in L.A., back before even Chinatown. And Fox had its, had its own lot. Like you can go to the, I think Universal still has a lot that's in LA, all the rest moved. But so Universal, you ever been to Universal Studios, the, the theme park? That, that was basically where, yeah, they made it into a theme park, but basically century, 20th Century Fox had this. And they didn't need this. They're like, we can shoot the movies out 30 miles out into the, uh, in the boondocks on like where the Manson family lived. The Manson family actually lived on one of those movie ranches that it wasn't an active ranch, but we could shoot it out there. We don't have to pay the people that live out there. You know, we can shoot them in New York or wherever. So they sell the lot to Zeckendorf, who doesn't have any money. He teams up with Alco and basically becomes a developer for, for a fee. And he builds Century City. And you know, at the end of the day, the joke is on 20th Century Fox and on him. Because if they had come up with a better deal or a better way to like finance that, that land is probably worth billions of billions of billions of dollars. I mean, if you look at the great families of Hong Kong, the real estate families, they owned that. They developed that land. It's the same thing. I mean, this land is priceless. I mean, everybody works in Century City. That was a great deal. He did another deal that didn't do too well. That was the deal with the amusement park. And that goes to, I think, the point of why are you getting involved in something you don't know anything about? Okay, fine. You want to be the next Walt Disney? Uh, you build an amusement park that you know, it didn't do, do too well, and it goes bankrupt. The land is taken over by the state and by a pension fund, and they develop co-op city on that land. So when you um, take the Throgs Neck Bridge and you're in the Bronx, on the left-hand side, there are like 50 of these these big. They look like NYCHA buildings, but they're not. They're co-op. It's co-op city. It's a integrated community that had its own problems when it started. So it was alleged that it brought that everybody from the concourse moved over there and that led to the Bronx's burning problems, which is a whole other thing. 
And then the state, because it's the state of New York, didn't build it right. And the buildings like had problems. They had to raise rents and there were rent strikes. There were bankruptcies. It's constantly being built up. But on the other hand, you can, for 20 something thousand dollars, you can get an apartment there. You have no equity, but at least you have a place to live and you pay a re, you pay like $1,500 a month for a two or three bedroom apartment. Try getting that anywhere else in New York. That's the, that, but he didn't do that. That came as a, he did the development, his project failed, and then it became Co-op City. But do you think a guy like him is able to do more innovative stuff than a public company? Do you think we lose something when we go into public companies? I think we definitely lose something. When anything that gets institutionalized, then it's just hard to be as creative as you were when you were a private real estate developer. Because of the corporate structures and when you have executives or, or investment committees, not everybody agrees with what you think, what your idea is in your project. And if I, if I look at the Las Vegas Strip, for example, when Steve Wynn built the Mirage, the Treasure Island, the Bellagio, it was a public traded company. I mean, I think they got the financing through junk bond. But he was the soul of the company. He was the decision maker. Yeah, he was. When you bought a a junk bond for uh, MGM Mirage or whatever the company was called, Mirage, I think it was. Yeah, Mirage Resorts. You were buying. It's like when you bought Apple. You were buying not the Apple team. You were buying Steve Jobs. Only Steve Jobs could come up with this thing. It was his vision. Where everybody else executes on it, but. Do you think we're losing our edge to the, do you think Vegas and America in general with design, do you think we've lost something? Because the big resorts, after you mentioned the ones in Macau, I actually looked them up and they are gorgeous. Do you think they've kind of taken the lead in terms of innovation in gaming? One of my favorite newer casinos is the City of Dream Casino in Macau. It's designed it by one of my favorite architects, um, Zaha Hadi. So if you That's type great. in Zaha Hadi Macau, then you will be able to see a lot of pictures on um, Google. So that building doesn't have a casino in it. It's the hotel portion of the, the casino hotel mega development. And Zaha Hadi, so if, oh, hi, Evan. Hi, um, I have a question when you're done, so- should check in with write it down because I forget questions if I don't (laughs) yeah so if we look at I'm just trying to think this way in a what was the question again now I forgot about the the, if when it becomes institutionalized yes because look at all of the decision makers at these institutional development companies, how many of them don't have a finance degree or a business-related degree? And how many of them are in love and have the passion towards design and architecture? So last week, I had this clubhouse room and I asked 10 commercial real estate professionals in my room, who's your favorite architect? And two of them were able to give a partial answer. One of them he named the architecture firm that his company worked with in one of his previous projects, but he couldn't name the, the name of the architect. And then the second person, he is based in Miami. So he talks about one of the museum in Miami, which was designed by 
Zaha Hadib, but he couldn't name the full name of Zaha Hadib, but he mentioned the, the museum and I told him that it's the one designed by Zaha Hadi. And I posted something on my LinkedIn the other day. I think the commercial real estate industry is not giving enough credit and recognition to architects and interior designers. But if I, but that, this is what I don't understand though. If I'm building a building, I want people to come and okay, fine. If I build it efficiently, yeah, I'll make money. But when I see some of those buildings, I just looked up City of Dreams in, in, in Hong Kong, or in Macau, I'm sorry, um, right across the bay from Hong Kong. This is a stunningly beautiful building. I mean, it's, I, I mean, how do you describe it? It's gorgeous. And how do I compete with it if I've got a frumpy little gold box next door? One of my favorite designers, and I talked about him in my previous episode, Roger Thomas. He was the former head of design at Wynn Resorts. He designed it, the Mirage, Treasure Island, Bellagio, Wynn, and Encore in Las Vegas. And he said, do not design something that you have seen before, because this industry is filled with people copying each other. If you're going to spend like a good five or seven or even 10 years of your life on a project, I mean, these are mega resorts. I mean, look at those, that hotel in Macau. Why are you trying to do something that somebody else has already done? Oh, I want to do what they did just better. And they were more beautiful. And and his concept is about originality and, and authenticity. But we don't have... It's, it all depends on the developer. Like when I talk about all of these hotels on the strip, always look at the developer that's behind it. Then you understand why this building looks this way. Why are some hotels on the strip are so beautiful? Because the developer behind it, he's probably the, the, the only developers in Las Vegas who spend that much money just on drawings. If he doesn't like the drawing, he could whip them off and put it on trash can and then redo the entire design. The Bellagio design that we see today is not the initial design. The initial design was a 50 acres lake with an island in the middle and the island had a casino hotel on it. So, and well, okay, so, yes, hi, Evan. Yeah. Hi. So this is a, a, a slightly different topic question of, it might be good for the podcast as well. So uh, there was an article about the uh, kind of the blow up in San Francisco and the write down, something about a billion dollar write down that companies have taken on their commercial leases in the city of San Francisco and that the lease rate was at 20%. So if I understand that correctly, that means 80% of the commercial properties downtown, mostly office buildings, I assume, I'm pretty sure that would be right, are are empty. 80% are empty. And then that could go down as low as uh, 10% in New York City, you know, in, in Manhattan. So at those kind of numbers, that sounds like a major crisis to me, right? So if the, that's a billion dollar write down, that's just sort of the beginning for, for Northern Cal, or at least it feels that way to me, or certainly New York is going to be more than that. Where does this go? And, and what is the road back? What does that look like? When you talked about the 3% in these baked into these, uh, the rental leases, 
that's uh, kind of a norm. I think that's kind of a, a standard standard uh, standardization in terms of a, an accepted norm, right? That people just adopt, but it doesn't mean anything. And I don't think it, it's it's exactly right for a lot of different reasons. But uh, what a, in a falling market like this, isn't it true that it's not really the prices per square foot that you see? sort of people asking for it's more like what is the uh the last rental in the building what did they pay and that would be what the new price per square foot would be so just you know like to hear your guys thoughts on that those two jeremy would you like to answer that first um evan who's your favorite architect Uh, um, I'm thinking uh, it's coming to me. Frank Lloyd Wright. Good job. <laughs> I feel like Evan, like the type of question, that's a great question. And I hear a lot of these type of questions in commercial real estate rooms on webinars. But why don't we have people talk about designers and architects? I'm going off the topic right now. No, I think that's exactly on the topic because the, the reason we're here was to talk about Bill Zeckendorf and genius. And one of the things that you identified when you were t- first introducing us was that genius included an understanding of what people want. And that includes mm-hmm. beautiful buildings. I think what you're going to see over the long term mm-hmm. is certain buildings are going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, certain buildings will not be okay. Something like one Vanderbilt is always going to be okay because there's always going to be a market for people who want to be in like a friggin' five-star Bellagio in the middle in the middle of Manhattan, just in their office where you can go hang out in the spa or on the rooftop deck. It's a beautiful building. But you know, what about everybody else? And are, they're going to be hurt too. I mean, there'll be lower end A, upper B. You know, those are the guys, like my former office building is going to hurt. But I do think people are going to start coming back I think companies over the long term are going to want people in the office because that gives them a, a way to control and mentor it, mentor you. If you've got your workers all over the country, at some point, especially I think tech firms especially are, are going to want them back. Banks, I think, may they're going to want some people back. Others, they're going to say, okay, fine, you have to be here one or two days a week, so they'll still need space. Because I think that I think the trend to packing people in and like um, what they call it, like hoteling, I think that's over. But I think that they're going to need the same amount of space for less people. And I, but I think that if I had any money, I'd buy buildings in Salt Lake City and Tampa and other B cities. Because I think what they're going to do is move back office people. Why do I need to have my accounting department in Manhattan? I can have them in Salt Lake City. Yeah. And Las Vegas too. And I'm going to answer Evan's question too. Evan, so in terms of San Francisco, there are actually tech companies that put their admin or HR departments in Las Vegas in an area called Town Square here in Las Vegas. So we actually seen a lot, some of the San Francisco Bay Area tech companies have their non-R&D departments in secondary cities. I mean, state of Nevada, lower taxes, lower cost of living. And they're, those employees, they don't necessarily have to be in the headquarter. I, I think that's a long trend. I think you're going to see it pick up. And I think, you know, listen, Vegas, as you were mentioning before, Vegas has a great quality of life. 
real estate is reasonably cheap. You can get a nice apartment, a nice house. You can live in Summerlin, which is one of the most mm-hmm. beautiful planned communities in the country. I think that's the name, Summerlin, right? Yes. And here's an interesting story. So go back to the book, um, Zackendorf. He visited Las Vegas one time. Oh. I think we lost. Are you still in the room or I'm still in the room? Did we lose everybody in the. Oh, there you are. Okay. I think oh. we lost everybody. It says, hold on. I don't know what happened, Hugo. My room just ended. Did you get my invite, Jeremy? I don't know what happened. I think, I said you, I think yeah, you You know, I think what we have to take a minute here and just thank Clubhouse because, <laughs> and, and you know, well, the other thing we have to do is we have to say the pandemic is, um, the pandemic has really done a, done a lot to, before the pandemic, I don't think these kinds of things would have been possible. And I, I think the genius of the, the human adaptability is you know, we have rooms like this and things like your podcast are really going to take off because you're able to connect with the people from across the country and across the globe and get different perspectives via this room like Clubhouse. And, and a year and a half ago, we never would have thought of doing this. So... I think that's just something we need to keep in mind. People will adapt. I do think people will go to the office. Though. Yeah. And could we go back to the book, Zackendorf? Now? Oh, there are a few things I would like to mention. So one of the things is he was the largest urban developer in the country. And actually, we, we should talk about the ending of the book. That in, I think it was in early 1960s, because he had too many development projects going on at the same time. And there were like, construction delays or lack of cash flow in those projects. So he had to file bankruptcy. I think it was, it was delays, too many projects in the fire, mm-hmm. at lack of capital and genius run amok, I guess, for lack of a better term. This is a guy who was an absolute giant, mm-hmm. but yeah. And we see this so many times and that's what really what makes a guy like Steve Wynn or Kirk Corian so unique. They knew their financial firepower and they knew exactly what they could do and what they could get away with. A lot of these other geniuses did not. We saw this in, this is the fourth or fifth book we read. And we saw it with Adam Newman. He didn't go bankrupt, but he had to be bailed out because he just spent all his money on wave pools. And I mean, he voted for himself to get out of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, Adam Newman... He had it. He just got bailed out by somebody. Harry Macklow had a problem. So mm-hmm. the, I think the question or the, the thing we should probably think about for you know next time is how can you, you pair financial responsibility, which comes from the spreadsheet, with vision? Because you can't let vision run amok because then you end up like Zeckendorf. Mm-hmm. How do you pair that with genius? And with you can't, you can't let have the spreadsheet run amok because when the spreadsheet runs amok, you get boring buildings mm-hmm. that yep. nobody wants to be in. And you get, yep. you know, we get institutionalization yep. and everything's painted beige and gray and tan. It's like you drive on the road, every car is tan or black. I have a great story. So back in fall of 2018, Steve Wynn had another idea of building a 23 acres man-made lagoon behind the Wynn Hotel, he wanted to replace the Wynn Golf Course to a man-made lake 
with fireworks playing every night, and restaurants and retails along the lake and, and sports. And after he stepped off of the CEO, because we all know what happened to him, the new CEO came on board and he did a public interview with the Las Vegas Review Journal and the new CEO said this publicly. He said, we're going to stop this project. It, the project was called the paradise, win paradise, something like that. He said, we're not going to do it. We are not going to continue this project because we don't want to build a public swimming pool in Las Vegas. A public swimming pool. Yeah. That would have been the envy of the world. When Steve Wynn came up the idea of building an eight-acre man-made lake in front of his hotel called the Bellagio, that was back in before 1998, because the Bellagio opened in 1998, everybody thought he was crazy. Because the traditional way of building a casino resort is you want the entrance to be on the street so people can come in, go to the casino floor, and just gamble. Why would you put an eight-acre lake between Las Vegas Boulevard and your main entrance of the hotel. And a lake is not a direct revenue generator for a casino. There's no slot machines and tables. But he had this vision and not only the lake, the music. The music is the magic secret sauce that would spice this thing up. But it's like it's different. The strip today is not what it was 20 years ago. It's, the it's, people losing, are, that, it's losing that charisma that you can't define. Exactly. And, and you're, you're, you're going to sit there for an hour. You're never going to be able to define yeah. what it is. But it's, it's just it's like Bill Clinton, Barack Obama. Those are public officials who had it. When you see a building like that, you just think, wow. That's that's it's like when you see the Mona, a beautiful piece of art or a sculpture, yeah. you can't describe why it's beautiful and why it touches people. So, what, why did why did millions of people wait hours to see the Mona Lisa? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I don't know, I can't explain that, but when you see it, so when corporation chose to bet on golf instead of yeah. so, so when Wynn was still the CEO. They were removing the trees from the golf course. I mean, the wing golf course is like the most gorgeous. Well, one of the most gorgeous because we do have a PGA golf course in Summerlin. But the wing golf course, it's gorgeous. And they started to remove the trees for the Paradise Project. And then after we stepped down as a CEO, the new CEO came on board and they put the trees back. So there were like a time period on the strip where you just see these trees moving in and out <laughs> from the wing golf course. So they put the trees back. They still had the convention centers. So the new convention centers at the wind, it was part of the Paradise Project. So the Paradise Project was a 23 acres lake and a new convention center and a new hotel tower surrounded the lake. But the only thing that they kept, the, the new decision makers kept, was the convention center. But what about the lake? Well, the question I have is pretty basic. If Vegas loses it, why are people going to keep coming back to go to the convention center? Just because you build it doesn't mean you can fill it up, especially now. I mean, I would think you need to have something that... Mm, that makes people want to go, no, look, I don't golf, 
but it's Vegas. There are golf courses everywhere. Okay, not on the strip. I may need to take an Uber to go golf if I go there. But the, 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 I think the genius of something like the Paradise Project is, oh my God, this looks gorgeous. I just want to sit in this, sit by it. It's going to be great. What, Jeremy? Please go Google Paradise Project Las Vegas or Win Paradise Las Vegas. Look at the renderings. It's gorgeous. And it's something that you do not expect to see in the desert. And that is the whole philosophy. Yeah, that's the point of a perfect partnership. Steve Wynn, Roger, like the Bellagio Hotel or the Mirage. They had natural lightings. They have flowers, plants in the casino. At the time, the Mirage 1989, who would have thought that when you walk into a, t- a casino, you see flowers and trees? So it looks like, I Google, I did Google, it looks like I imagine, well, I've been to Hawaii, I haven't been to the Caribbean, but it, this is what I would imagine the Caribbean looks like. Mm-hmm. That'll get people to go to Vegas, because now I can go to the beach in the middle of Vegas. Yeah. Um, but- and, and I would like to add this. Another main reason why Steve Wynn wanted to replace the golf course with the lake is because he said a golf course is a great view, but only during the days. Because during nighttime, you cannot see anything. It's dark. It's That's true. <laughs> but if you have a lake with fireworks and lightings and convention center and retail and restaurants, you can do a lot of activities 10 p.m. at night around that lake. And he also had the water, right? The Wien Hotel site is sitting on the previous Desert Inn Hotel site. And the Desert Inn Hotel had the water, right, of that site. And actually, the 23 acres Mammoth Lake will use less water than the current golf course over there. That's, that's the thing people don't realize. Golf courses use a ton of water. Mm-hmm. And I don't understand why Las Vegas has like 50 golf courses in the desert. Because Americans love to golf and I think people retire there. The genius of someone like Wynn is that he could build a lake that you and I think is a waste of water. But at the end of the day, it's not, he doesn't have to water every plant and every tree. So he ends up making one. Yeah. But what did you take away from this book? What lessons do you think it could carry over to, yes. to, to our lives? Oh. Let me say hi to Peter. Hi, Peter. Jeremy and I were actually recording a podcast episode about a book called Zackendorf. He is a legendary developer, and we're talking about his book. <laughs> the The book club was in a previous room, and I don't know what happened to that room. It suddenly ended. I think I got like an air message saying my connection is poor so I started this room saying my room ended with a question mark um Jeremy so my takeaway from this book is that always protect your downside and the upside would take care of itself I mean his projects are great and his ideas are great and the way he thinks about investment and developments are great but I think he he, he just had too many projects going on at the same time and there's yeah, it's just just knowing how to protect your downside. Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting book because I've read a lot of autobiographies. I usually don't read autobiographies because it's usually, usually they, even interesting people are not going to want to tell you everything bad mm-hmm. they did. Zeckendorf was brutally honest with 
with himself mm -hmm. um, about the loss of his wife, even though he was not the best, he admits he was not the best family person. But I, what I took away with it was two things, genius and the need of everybody to have somebody around them who can tell them, no, don't do this. Because this guy was a genius. And imagine if he had had better financial analysts by his side who would have told him, you can't do that. And yeah. let me tell you something. No person is an island. We all rely on everybody else. Yes. Um, and this reminds me. Please continue. Uh, no, what did it remind you of? Michael Melkin. Oh. He was the financial brain of Mirage, Treasure Island, and Bellagio. Michael Milken was made a lot of this possible. And the funny thing is that one of the few people who did not have any, I take that back, many people who Milken dealt with had problems. When was, was exactly what junk bonds were invented for? That you pay a higher rate because there's a higher risk, but you everybody, especially when, made money. The bondholders never lost. But Wynn understood that. And, you know, that's why he's such a, 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 a singular fit figure. He and Kokorian, yeah. they never went bankrupt. They, Kokorian may have had some, some brushes with insolvency. I think he had some problems about in 2008, but everybody had problems in 2008. Mm -hmm. It wasn't only him. They had nothing to do with Kirk Kokorian. But these guys knew their upside. They knew their downside. They knew what they could take. And they never had problems. Zeckendorf was a genius who I think, you know, he goes out and buys half of downtown Manhattan, isn't making money to do David Rockefeller a favor. And at the end of the day, he saved downtown Manhattan, but it's not saved. The state has to go out and build the World Trade Center. That doesn't work either. And he's taken on to his balance sheet, what the equivalent of billions and billions of dollars of debt, that if every piece had not come into play exactly as it did, Webb and Knapp would have gone bankrupt in 1954 as opposed to 1964. Mm -hmm. His son, William Zeckendorf, not William Zeckendorf, William Zeckendorf Jr., yeah. did the same sort of thing. He had some problems and he ended up in trouble. Now we're in the third generation. The third generation, William Zeckendorf and the other Zeckendorf, uh, they're building condos. And they built 15 Central Park West, which is a billionaire's building. Nobody likes that. But let me tell you something. I didn't even know it was there because it blends right into the neighborhood. And, and, and it's a classical, beautiful building. As a, It's not a super tall box. It's something that, and look, that's another form of genius because these guys are able to go into Midtown Manhattan and build a building that's beautiful, that people will want to be there for because it, it blends into the architectural style. Mm -hmm. So I recommend the book because I, I think he's fascinating. Yeah. And you're never, you're never going to get anybody as brutally honest as this guy was. It was a pleasure to read a book where somebody was completely 100% honest. We never see that today. And my favorite quote from this book is... Actually, at the very beginning, even before chapter one, he talked about how he started as a broker. It was after the great 
depression in 1930s. He was buying distressed assets, and then he was the broker, and he turned into an investor, and he turned to a developer, and he became. He was at one point the largest urban developer in the country. Multiple projects in multiple different cities, and even I think in Canada, Mexico too.、Yeah. And and then 1964, he filed bankruptcy, and unfortunately, his wife passed away in the same year in an airplane accident. But in that story or on that page, at the very last sentence, he said, "This book is about my previous life, like the life before he filed bankruptcy." And he said, "If I have the chance to do it all over again, I would, only bigger and better." I think that sums up his entire life story and his personality. You know, you're absolutely right. And the thing is, is that, like you said before, these guys with vision, Harry Macklow. When we left Harry Macklow, he'd been he'd basically given up his prized asset. His wife and his family had forced him to sell, and he was basically starting over. And he went out and he built that 432 Park Avenue. He teamed up with some insurance company, I think, and they built this beautiful asset. Yeah, I, I really like Four Thirty Two Park Avenue too. I, th- I think Zeckendorf. I don't think he came back as a developer. I think by then he was just exhausted. I think what he ended up doing was he did a lot of consulting work for his son, who became a, a much more responsible developer. But even he got into trouble. I think his problem was he just didn't. He was very generous with his partners. And you know, he built some beautiful assets too. He built the Worldwide Plaza, the Sun, but the Sun got into trouble in the '90s. Is still around now. The grandchildren are still very active developers. So something in this family made them special, and they've continued to make beautiful buildings for. I mean, they've been active. This family has been active in one form or another for seven years. The difference between them and a family like the Dursts. Is that these guys are constantly reinventing themselves? The Dursts have been one family doing business carefully. These guys, they do business, they blow up, they come back, they blow up, they come back, and at the end of the day, the people who benefit the most are us because we're left with the with it the, with their artwork, and we just have to make sure we preserve it and appreciate it. You're you're muted. I love how you use the word art. To describe buildings, I listened to what you said. You inspired me. Thank you. A few I, weeks I ago, I love that. I love that. I think every building is a piece of art, and if you understand the artist behind, I, every building reflects. Well, one of my favorite quotes from Professor Menish, if he's listening, oh, he's, oh, he's a he, he is a he's an architect and he's an absolute genius. Yes,、But. yes, I, I love him, Professor Manish. Shout out to you if you're listening to this podcast. Well, he say, <laughs> he say, the art of development is the art of discovering yourself. Every piece of art reflects the artist that's behind it. If you understand the story. If you understand the developer that's behind it, if you understand the team that's behind it, then you will understand why this building looks this way. Why is、yeah, Corin's buildings different than Steve Wynn's buildings? Both had the financially capability, and team, and people, sources, and political powers to build casino hotels. But why do their buildings look differently? And why do Steve Wynn's buildings perform so much better financially? The Mirage, Bellagio, Wien, and Encore broke 
the gaming revenue and total revenue record of Nevada history when they opened it. Because these two developers, they have different personalities. And it's not right or wrong. It just reflects who they are. And Kukukorian's buildings, they are big. He built the world's biggest casino three times. Yeah, it's funny because Professor Manish, Professor Manish is truly a unique guy because he's actually got, he's an architect. Mm-hmm. He, he's a private equity investment banker mm-hmm. and he's a professor. So he's a true Renaissance man. So mm-hmm. when he tells you that quote, that's coming from somebody who really knows. And that's something we need to keep in mind just going forward because he actually knows this stuff because yeah. he's got, he's like Jerry Hines. He can look at a building and say, that's a beautiful building. And we can make more money because it's a beautiful building. And I think the difference between the geniuses and the technicians comes from that book, Winner Take All. I think we've talked about that book before. Yes. The guy from Harris, he made plenty of money by figuring out exactly where somebody like you or me would go in that casino. But but who's ever, who's going to admit that they go to Vegas to go to Harris? They go to win. And can you name... The CEO of the Harris? I don't remember his name. And that's the that's the point I'm trying to make. That's the exactly. point that book is trying to make. There are two chapters in the book that I just skipped it. Because basically the book was talking about the former CEOs of... I don't want to name the company. You guys can go read the book. But that two Thank chapters well. were um, Winner Takes All. That two chapters basically was talking about how these Ivy League graduated economists or mathematic geniuses came up with the rewards program and number crunching on their spreadsheets, trying to calculate how to attract more people to their casino, rewards program, slot machines, yada, yada, yada. I just skipped it because it was so boring. The, the, third chapter. the, the part that I focused the most was about Ween versus Kukukorian, their mergers and acquisition battle. That was the story, of, the story of the dog. That was the highlight of the book. And I'm also surprised in the book didn't mention Sheldon Elderson's Venetian. I think, you know, and I have to, I haven't read that. I read that book maybe long time ago. And 15 years. I was in law school, so it has to be like 13 years ago. Maybe, maybe 10. I think Adelson was not as active. Adelson just had the one building. He just built the Venetian and that was that. But but that one building, it's still the second largest hotel in the world. Absolutely. Sold for $4 billion to Vichy Properties and another $2 billion to Apollo for the but the, but the genius, but the book was about the geniuses who were fighting. I mean, Adelson basically came in, built, and he was like, I'm done. Let's go to Macau. Yeah. You, you know, and, and Adelson is a G Adelson deserves books of his, in his own right. Oh, I think he's, he's truly one of the most fascinating. When you talk about the four geniuses of Nevada, Adelson is, it's, it's very rare. You know, I was reading an article the other day about Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi. And how for 15 years, since 2007, these two men have essentially dominated a a sport that a billion people play or over a billion people play. How rare is it that two people like that come around and hang out for 15 years with no competition? Mm -hmm. The genius of those three men 
first of all, three guys like that never come around ever. They came around at the same time mm-hmm. and they were in the same city and they were there for 30 years. years. And they built Las Vegas. They took a desert mobbed up town yeah. from the movie casino and made it into the playground of the world. Yeah. And unfortunately, the trend seems to be that after that, we tend to move into more corporate settings. And I will have to add this. I actually say this in my podcast before. History re- repeats itself. It always back, does. Back in the 50s and 60s, it was the mob era of the Las Vegas strip and casinos, right? And then in the 70s, the federal government was cracking down illegal organized crime. And also, I think Atlantic City legalized gaming around that time. And also, there was another law that got passed that allows corporations to enter into the casino business, and it doesn't require shareholders to have a gaming license. So that law allowed corporations to come to Vegas and build their own casinos. So from 1973 to 1989, 16, 17 years, Vegas did not have a brand new ground up casino hotel construction because at that time, these corporations who came to Vegas, they simply either acquired the existing hotels because the mobs were running away, you know. Like you know Howard Hughes just walked three hotels. Yeah, for yeah How- Howard Hughes and Hilton, Dow Webb, MGM, and I think another public listed company. So the five largest employers on the strip at the time were five public listed companies. They did not build anything brand new ground up this not a brand new casino hotel construction they simply expanded the existing casinos or hotels or they added another hotel tower copy and paste the design and asset managed yes so that time 16 17 years of no new innovation and that period, Las Vegas was viewed as going downhill because at the t- 1970s, it was also the B-list celebrities would perform in Vegas and the A-list celebrities would be at Hollywood. So it wasn't until 1989 when Steve Wynn opened the Mirage that people realized that, wow, this is Las Vegas Strip 2.0 because the design of the Mirage is the completely opposite of what a traditional casino people imagine in their head. And the Mirage, like I know the Mirage is a little bit outdated right now. A lot of people think it's old. It's not as fancy as the other hotels. The Mirage is a classic case study that shows non-gaming revenue can be higher than gaming revenue. And it invented the definition of what a casino resort would be, not just a casino. Well, it's interesting. And I think I think we uh, need to start winding down. But it's interesting. You went, the, the 80s boom mm-hmm. was made possible by Michael Milken's junk bonds. Mm-hmm. Now, Beachy and Blackstone, they're buying casinos at a 3 or 4% cap rate. But they're not means- building anything new. They're not, but but the builders would pay would pay interest rates of twelve to fifteen percent and still make money. 
these guys are buying at a low at a guaranteed a theoretical return of four percent. So at some point, maybe the cycle will start again because Las Vegas is, they don't have stark preservation laws in Las Vegas. And at some point, the cycle will start again. And history repeats itself. It always does. History, the question is whether or not, I think, at some point, people are going to start traveling again. Mm Mm-hmm. And the question will be, is Vegas going to need to reinvent itself to to start getting people to come back? And by the way, Vegas is always going to be there. I think Vegas is going to start, is is already transitioning into a place where people live. And it's not Sin City anymore. It's a city that has a gambling district that does really well. You have the most successful planned community in America there, Mm -hmm. in Summerlin. And by the way, I think Summerlin is only like three quarters built out. There's a lot to go. And the quality of life in Summerlin, from what I understand, is really good. You have a PGA golf course there. By the way, Summerlin is the name of Howard Hughes' grandmother. Howard Hughes, oh, really? yeah, Howard Hughes bought the site. I, I think he, Howard Hughes used to own a site in North Las Vegas, it was like thousands of acres or something like that. And then the federal government at the time wanted to use the North Las Vegas site for like infrastructure or airport or something like that. So they asked Howard Hughes to exchange land exchange and the federal government say, what, there's a little city called Las Vegas. Why don't we, well, it was like back in 1960s or something like 50s or something like that. Um, Why don't we exchange that part, the West part of Las Vegas with you for the North Las Vegas site? And he did. So that's how he got the Summerlin site. And he named it after his grandmother. It's being developed slowly, I think. But I th- I was listening a few months ago to a call on Commercial Observer. Mm-hmm. And these guys were basically, they, the way they were talking, and I actually got curious because I'd never heard of these things. And I asked somebody who knows, I think I asked Barry Hirsch, and I asked a couple guys who knew him. And they said, listen, you need to understand something. When you drive around, the difference between living in a planned community like Rancho Mission Viejo and living in just Los Angeles is like night and day. And you could drive around Henderson and Summerlin and the quality of life in Summerlin is just better built. And I think people want walkability these days. People want to live near their their office, and you're going to see these cities start changing. But I think it's nine thirty. We've been going for an hour and a half. All right. Uh, I think um, we can go all night. Yeah. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you, everybody. For our, our podcast, our first room ended. I don't know why. See, I'm having some issue with the connections. Let me just end the room. This was great. I know. There was some issue with the clubhouse rooms. I got kicked out a few times, but uh, I can talk about Vegas. Like what for- we need to do next time is we have to Leaders have like takes a- all. Yeah, let's that's, do that. That's but, the book that we have to talk about. But we have to have like we have to have like agreed upon topics in advance, like flow. <laughs> you know, we could put together a nice. You know, you could, yeah, this was fun. I enjoyed this. And no, what was no. great was we used Zeckendorf to talk about everything else. <laughs> but I I love the format that we don't have a set 
topic because we go always go off topic, but that's the fun we're of gonna, podcasting. We're gonna, we're gonna go off topic anyway. But, but you know, if like with winner take all, I, I have to, the book is back there. I, I will get it and I will read it again because there's so much in there. And you know, what we should do is figure out a way to talk about something different. But, like yeah. this was different. We always Vegas is fascinating. It really is. When are you coming next time? I can take you to Summerlin. Ah, uh, maybe in December first. Yes, for ICS. Yes, ex- okay. I I'm thinking about maybe I should have my own reception, like party bus. Say yeah. Minja and her friends party bus during that week. By the way, I think I think leisure travel is going to do really well this year. Yeah, Vegas is coming back. I was on the strip two days ago. How it's far back. is your office from the strip? Twenty minutes, twenty-five minutes. Um, my office is in Summerlin. So oh, really? I, yeah. So next time when you come to Vegas, I can take you. I can introduce you to Jeff. I can. It's really nice. It's really nice. It's. I mean, there's a baseball, like a mini baseball stadium. There, it, we work is. Oh, I heard about that. A minor league baseball stadium, right? Um, I I sent you the article. I sent you the article, by the way, about um, Sheldon Adelson and Mark Davis and the Raiders. That's actually a fascinating article. I, I, I'm going to read it too. It's it's, um, it's utterly fascinating. I, I feel like a lot of times, like in the podcast, I have a lot of things that I need to explain it a little bit deeper so people don't misunderstand my message. Like, especially when I, the part that I talk about spreadsheets, like I was, I'm not trying, I'm not saying that spreadsheets are not. I think, I think you, what you said was, there's, what you said was very simple and very true. There's more to life than just a bunch of numbers. Yes. And if you spend the money and build something beautiful, mm-hmm. like Summerlin, do you think that Howard Hughes Corporation did a schlock job like every other developer does in Henderson, they spent extra money on Summerlin. And because they spent the extra money on it, it, it's perfect and it works. And here's a story I forgot to mention about Roger Thomas and Steve Wynn. So when Steve Wynn was the owner of the Golden Nugget, he wanted to add the hotel tower because at the time, Golden Nugget only had the casino portion. And the first architect that he called was I am pay. I am pay said no. I think he did like a sketch drawing or something, but he was not the final architect. Roger Thomas was the final architect. And the, the reason why Roger Thomas wanted to work with Steve Wynn and he has been, he worked with him throughout his entire career, but at the time he was like in his mid twenties or something like that. And he said, I wanted to work with this guy because he called the best architect in the world to design his casino and that level of, I don't know how to explain this, but you you can't explain it because that's the whole point. There are some things in life (laughs) that that you just cannot explain. explain. Well, it's, it's something that intuitively like that when you go to an art museum, and by the way, I know nothing at all about art and I know nothing at all about music to my great regret. But when you go to the Met Museum, or you, I went to the Met Opera House, and the, the opera I saw was Madame Butterfly. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there and I'm watching it. I could barely see it. I did not bring my glasses. Mm-hmm. But you could tell it was just a beautiful, the set was beautiful, the court, everything was just beautiful. I have no idea why. Mm-hmm. It, just, it just is. In your, 
it's it's like okay. we're hardwired to mm-hmm. know that that's beautiful. Yeah, and so I am Pei. For those who are listening to this podcast who don't know who I am Pei is, um, please Google him. He is a legendary architect um, in the architecture he's, world. He's up there with Frank. Frank He's definitely up there. Lloyd Wright. He's in every history book about architecture. I'm I'm sure his name is in there. But he has to be. He is one of the. I believe he was actually a Chinese immigrant to the United yeah. States, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Chinese this is back. American. This is back like eighty or ninety years ago, mm-hmm. and he he was just. I think he died within the last three or four years. But he, mm-hmm. I am Pei is, up there with Bruno Leslie and and Frank Lloyd Wright. These are the architectural geniuses of yeah. the human race. You know, to call him an architect is not even fair, mm, um, because yeah. because he's he's a um, the buildings he built are standing works of modern art. Yeah, this story tells you how many real estate developers nowadays, when they think of hiring an architect for their own project, they call the best architect in the world without thinking the budget of the development. Well, I mean, obviously not everybody had the financial capability that Steve Wynn had because Wynn is well known as a developer who doesn't have a budget for his development projects. The thing is, is that Wynn may not have a budget, but, and this is the thing about the spreadsheets, Wynn never got caught going bankrupt building one of his buildings, ever. Mm -hmm. It, you know, he may have run into financial difficulties, but he never got caught in the Maclo or Zeckendorf mm-hmm. situation. And, and that's something to explore because this was a guy who knew what he was doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he probably, yeah, you would say he overspent, not you, but somebody would say he overspent. Mm-hmm. And he always made the money back. And it wasn't the next guy who made the money back. It was Steve Wynn's company mm-hmm. that made the money back because he did know enough about, he knew enough about his business. He knew exactly what he could get away with, and he never had a bankruptcy. And he mm-hmm. owed. And, and if you invested in any one of Wynn's properties, you double or triple your money. The question is, how do you replicate genius? It's hard. It's so everybody talks about how expensive his buildings were, but at the time, nineteen eighties. Just like I mentioned, that 16 years of no ground up brand new construction casino hotel, people needed a new casino hotel to open at that time. And also, um, I think the US had a recession in the early 80s. People needed something new. And at the time, Vegas was not a destination for luxurious tourists, the upper class, to come here because it was viewed as the sin city gambling towns, and no luxury travelers. It was something that was lacking in the market. It was a supply and demand issue. The population was booming, but there was no new hotel coming up to the market. I, I think first the first thing you have to say is it's not hard to replicate genius. It's simply not possible. You can't replicate someone like Steve Wynn. It's, it's just never going to happen. You'll get somebody else, but he won't be like Steve Wynn. He'll be... Mm someone different. The question I have going forward is what happens to these properties like the Venetian? And I I think that's what the Venetian knew. They knew that without the genius of Sheldon Adelson, they were never going to be what they were. 
And I suspect they just wanted to get out of the business because they knew that they would always be judged by what Mr. Adelson did, and they were just never going to be able to get there. That that's same question goes to Wynn Resorts. Well, Wynn can't get out of the business because they don't, uh, but I think they're probably going to move to that more asset management role of just managing what they have and trying to keep it, ca- and look, it'll cash flow for 30 years, but the problem comes within 30 years. And in school, they would always tell us, well, you keep the building for 10 years, the building decays, then it's time to redevelop. So what happens in 10 or 15 years? Because like you said, the Mirage is probably, the Mirage is, is a 30-year-old hotel. And it's not like the Waldorf Astoria, which is 100 years old. It's a casino. And a 30-years hotel in Las Vegas, it's outdated in Vegas standard. It is, but, but there's still a lot of potential there. You know, the thing is, is that institutional money has moved in and institutional money is also very cautious, except when it's not. Institutional money did, you know, Blackstone for all of its, Blackstone is willing to do very risky things. They are. Um, they do. You know, I mean, a re, SL Green did a $1.6 billion development in Midtown Manhattan. That's a risk. Vornado did risks. I mean, the question is, is these guys own, I mean, you have to look at what, how long the lease is. So you've got a 20 or 30 year lease of the property. At the end of 30 years, you're going to have to do something with that property. You're, you're no longer competing with international dollars as opposed exactly. to domestic dollars. You're not competing with the bingo hall down the block. You're competing with international travelers, international wills. If I'm from Japan, I can go to Macau easily. But why should I go to Vegas? Because I want to go to, I can play Baccarat in the local mafia pool room. If I'm going somewhere, I want to have a good time. I go for the entertainment and what? Staying in a nice place. That's a reason people will go somewhere. Did you read my latest article on Substack about the history of casino design? I did. That was actually a, that was a research piece that um, I was expecting a, a real estate article. That was an architectural history article that got into real estate. It was really, really good too. It was detailed. It got into the, you know, you really show how much thought goes into designing it's it's architect people forget these casinos are and and you really reminded me and everybody else who read that article this isn't just like you don't hire an interior decorator this is a scientific process that's designed with a reason these casinos are designed with a specific purpose in mind and the signs of as you displayed in the article Mm -hmm. have been refined over 70 years And at the very last portion of the article, I talked about what I think the next generation of casinos will look like from my own narrowed perspective and limited knowledge. Uh, Everybody should go and read that article. It was a great article. I can't spoil it, but it was, you 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 got into granular depth. It was actually really interesting. And it's fascinating to see how much work goes into different in some ways than the shopping mall. And, but nobody talks about, people talk about, oh, it's got an anchor. It's got the inline stores. You got to put the Apple store here. So everybody walks by the stores. So you have to be 
Mm-hmm. The casino does the same thing, just on a much more scientific level. And I think you really talked about that in the crate. It was really a fascinating article. Thank you. Um, and I haven't get into the deeper version of psychology behind casino design. It was just a overview history of how it has evolved. You, you talked about how it went from being closed and light. Mm-hmm. Now it's open and natural. Mm-hmm. Look, I'm going to have to go check these casinos out one day. Come to Vegas in December during the ICSC week. And then if you to Summerlin, we go play golf. We will visit all of these hotels. And maybe I can have an architecture tour of the Las Vegas Strip and I can set up my own. Actually, meeting. that would be a great, that, you should do that. That would be a great podcast for you. Or I can, I can rent a bus and call it Mingja and her friends. Happy tour. It would actually be a really great podcast because you could do a video outside each one. And they would probably talk to you too. They don't care. They're happy to talk about their casinos. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think we should do like an architecture tour of these hotels. Mary Hirsch did an architecture tour of Brooklyn with Raquel Ramadi a few weeks ago, actually. Wait, were you there? It was, I wasn't there. It was done online. So everybody uh, watched. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. I, I think I saw that event. Yeah. They're, they're very, they're, it was very good. It was very interesting. You know, look, I remember Bro- Brooklyn is Brownstone, Brooklyn. It's amazing that in 20 years, Brooklyn has become something that I don't even recognize. Mm-hmm. It's completely not what I remember, which mm-hmm. is fine. I think that's great. But I have to go to sleep. <laughs> it's like 10 p.m. It's, it's, it's Jeremy's bedtime and it's my dinner time. So this is like a Joe Rogan episode. It's like it has been going on for like two, three hours. But yes, I, I will think about the architecture tour and see how I can plan that and put my friends together. And definitely like a, we will have fun at the end. You know, it's it's it's. You got to build on that article, you know, from the inside, like, start talking about how the outsides were designed. Yes, and, yes. And how they went, because look, do you think the fact that these casinos now have beautiful outdoors and look great and they're so enticing to people, do you think that's played a role in from going from Fremont Street and, and Binion's, what's the name of that place? Binion's Horseshoe, horseshoe. To, to the win? Yep. If you compared Steve Wynn's casino to Binion's Horseshoe, Steve Wynn would probably sock you in the jaw. Because they're 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 just different. Yeah, it's uncomparable. You can see the transition because you can still go to downtown Vegas to Fremont Street. You can still see some of these small hometown casinos, mm-hmm. and you compare them to the Wind. The Wind would you could fit probably Binion's Horseshoe into the kitchen of the Wind. Yeah, yeah, but people go to go to Fremont. It's a different type of demographic. And some people go there specifically for the downtown Vegas, old Vegas vibe. And the strip has a different type of demographic. And there's just a lot that goes into a casino hotel that I can write about and talk about in my podcast. That's what's so interesting. In one city, you've got the horseshoe and then you've got the wind. And yeah, why do they appeal to different people? This is what's so interesting about it. Yeah, but uh, sometimes I get a little bit upset when I, well, so my episodes about Las Vegas and history always get the least amount of downloads on my podcast. The the ones that get the most amount of downloads are 
always about investment and finance and market trends. Then we have to figure out a way to use Vegas as a, because you have a passion for Vegas. We have to figure out a way to use that passion mm-hmm. to talk about market analysis and market trend. But I don't want to talk about market analysis and market trend. If I talk about those things, then what makes my podcast different from all of the other? I'm sorry, not that. Whatever people download, you've get, we've got to figure out a way to map, to get your passion, to get people to, to to buy into your passion, because that's what you're interested in is like Vegas and architecture, and how you can combine everything. I do have mix of episodes about my passion and what people would like to hear. But I will continue doing what I'm passionate about, even though it gets the least amount of downloads, and not everybody's interested in casino. Because just like all of these commercial real estate rooms on Clubhouse, I mean, they always invite me to the stage, and I say, "Well, I don't know anything besides the history of Las Vegas." And you know a lot more than you, a lot more than you give yourself credit. <laughs> But the problem is, like ninety nine percent of the people in commercial real estate don't care about casino designs or casino hotels because they're not in this business, and they're not interested to talk about things that they cannot make money out of. What I'm interested in is a very special niche topic or sector that only fits maybe one percent of the people in commercial real estate are interested. You have to become the expert in that. But the podcast shows you understand asset management, you understand market analysis,、mm-hmm. and you understand Vegas, and you have a vision. So, yes, I have to go to sleep. Yeah, I have to go. I have to go to the restroom. <laughs> have a、uh, let's talk tomorrow. Yes, I'll let you when it comes、yeah. out, and then we schedule the next one. The next one is going to be about the book "Winner Takes All." I feel like I can talk five hours just on that book. We'll have to divide the book into. Parts one. So I have to read the book again. Give me a week okay, to find、yeah. it. You go read the book. We can. I read it. I read it when it came out. I, I, I. But the thing is, is that look, I can get away talking about a book I read ten years ago, but I can't get away talking about this book, that book with you. <laughs> so I have to have an, a a full understanding of it because it's such an interesting book, and it, it you see the genius of Steve Wynn when you read that book. You know, he might be crazy. You might not like him, but he's a genius,、yeah. and he comes through in that book. And look, if everybody should strive to be a genius in one thing, because if you're a generalist, whatever, you'll be the CEO of Harris. You'll make a lot of money; nobody will remember you. But when he's got more money, and everybody knows him, yeah.、Mm-hmm. Good night. Good night. <laughs> bye, Jeremy. All right. Bye bye.